Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. From Tsunami Sushi in downtown Lafayette, we're Out to Lunch with Christian Maida, editor and publisher of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. Lafayette is home to two hospital systems and has a deep bench of medical providers. It's become the hub city in a new kind of way. It's Acadiana's medical hub. So it might surprise you to learn that access to healthcare is still a problem here. Every parish in Acadiana except Lafayette has a federally designated shortage of healthcare providers. Why? Well, if the answer were easy, it probably wouldn't be a problem, but suffice it to say the health business is complicated because health is complicated. And we can look at the issue from two ends, providers on the one and patients on the other. My guest, Donna Oquant, is a medical psychologist and owner of Oquant and Associates, a private therapy practice. Donna began her career in mental health as a social worker, and after going back to school to become a psychologist, she worked for the State Office of Mental Health as a regional psychologist, where she did clinical work and developed community programs. She left state employment and moved into private practice, her long-term goal, founding Oquant and Associates. And the practice has grown substantially since then and now offers a range of mental health services for individual patients, families, and groups. Donna Oquant, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Uh, in healthcare, it takes two to tango, and the other partner here is the patient. Health education plays a big role in public health outcomes. And my guest, Gabriel Morley, plays a big role in health education. Gabriel is the CEO of Southwest Area Health Education Center, or SWALAHEC. AHECs are nonprofits set up by Congress in the 1970s to address healthcare shortages and can be found in basically every state. Gabriel's office covers the Lafayette and Lake Charles areas and develops programs designed to help people make healthier lifestyle choices. Um, and SWALAHEC does a lot more than that. It helps patients navigate the market for low and no cost health insurance and trains providers in community care. Gabriel holds a doctorate in adult education. He came to his job at Swallowheck after a career working in libraries, and he grew up in Slidell. Gabriel Morley, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me. So, Donna, you made a choice to keep your practice relatively small, right? Like, you were kind of on a growth trajectory. I think at one yes. point you bought a building, right? Correct. That's, a, it, it, that's an investment. You yes. were eyeing an expansion, but you changed your mind. What made you change your mind? Yes. So, uh, that was around 2016. Um, I had built a building. And uh, on the lot that I was on, there was an opportunity to build another building. And um, we were already bursting at the seams in our current location. And I thought, okay, well, the next move, and there was, let me back up, there was about a three-month wait to get into the practice. And everyone was just really busy. And um, I always wanted us to be a boutique psychology practice sure. where we really offered individualized treatment plans and, you know, you really felt like you were well taken care of. So um, while I was thinking about expanding to try to better meet the needs, um, I started to feel like we were losing that boutique um, kind of atmosphere and starting to feel a little bit more like Walmart. And um, so, and we were taking insurance at the time. Yeah. Uh, a lot of providers in Lafayette are private pay. And uh, I, I was really reluctant to make that change because to go from taking insurance to private pay because I did want to be able to serve everyone. Um, but we did ultimately make that decision because with insurance, 
providers, they're dictating what we can offer in terms of services and testing, and then the reimbursement rates are a lot lower. Uh, so ultimately, I made the decision to remain smaller and, and more of, of the boutique field and um, leave the insurance provider panels and just offer private pay services. So I, I did not expand and, and we've you know maintained sort of that smaller um, boutique feel. Sure. I mean, insurance is its own ball of wax, of course, in, in the healthcare industry. And, and, you know, Gabriel, one of the things that y'all are offering, I, I take as a service, right, is the ability to help people sort of navigate that marketplace. But you guys do a lot of stuff, right? I was kind of looking through, you got six departments, you got dozens of initiatives. I mean, <laughs> I almost felt like an obvious question was, like, what doesn't your program do? I mean, like, what are some sort of like an obvious thing that if I'm thinking about Swallow Heck, here's the thing I don't go to Swallow Heck for in the health space. We're not clinicians. Okay. Right? We, we would partner <laughs> with someone like Donna yeah. to figure out how we can, can create a program and, yeah. and make it work for people uh, in southwest Louisiana, right? Yeah. From Region 5 to Region 6, from Texas all the way over to Baton Rouge. And, and that's sort of been our bread and butter over the last 30 years is to get in where we fit in. Mm -hmm. and, and whether it's a national program, a federal program, state program, local program, we have that uh, flexibility. We're nimble enough to create a program around whatever guidelines are in place and then implement it at the grassroots level, which is where we know the need is. It's yeah. with people, it's not the, the moneyed interest. And one of the, the things I, I thought about that may be apropos, especially to the, 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 the origin story uh, she mentioned earlier, Walgreens forced their CEO out, right? Because she was more retail oriented and instead they're gonna bring in a CEO who's more focused on making Walgreens uh, a walk-in urgent care clinic. Yeah. Wow. Right? So if, if, if what you're saying, I, I think, is that there's this consolidation mm -hmm. happening in healthcare where more and more groups, CVS is trying to become a provider, mm -hmm. right? So all of these places mm -hmm. are, are trying to create a one-stop shop, mm -hmm. but on the, the back end, it's excluding people for various reasons, like you, you mentioned, for insurance reasons, mm -hmm. for transportation uh, reasons, mm -hmm. accessibility reasons. And, and that's one of the things we, we try to, to, to combat is those barriers uh, and, and those wide range of health disparities that create some of these systemic problems we have uh, in Louisiana. So Donna, I'd, I'd like to kind of hear this perspective from you a little bit more. I mean, um, so I see a therapist, she's private pay, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's pretty common. It is. It's less common with maybe, you know, I would presume just general practitioners, right? I mean, I, every doctor I've ever seen has taken insurance. Yes. So, so why is that a specific, like, concern, I suppose, for, for folks in the mental health field? I mean, it seems like there's a growing need. We're recognizing that broadly. Right. But, for like, sure. there's, there seems to be sort of like a difference in how the economics of it works. Yeah, that's a great question. So when you have health insurance, the benefits for your major medical coverage or the coverage for if you want to see a general practitioner is different than the mental health benefits. So when you're looking for um, coverage, you have to call a number on the back of your card to find out what your mental health or behavioral health benefits are, like for substance abuse, you know, or any of the dependency or psychological um, issues, there's typically a different copay, a different deductible, and different limits to coverage. So um, it, it really was making it difficult for us. We would recommend 
uh, a certain battery of tests, for instance, like let's say someone was coming in for um, an autism evaluation and, and we wanted to do certain tests, well the insurance company would dictate which tests or how many units we could get covered. And, and so we felt like our uh, clinical judgment was being compromised um, by the limits of the reimbursement. And uh, we often wanted to do school visits, and uh, those those were limited. Um, and so, when you're on a panel, you're agreeing to to do what they allow. So it was it was an ethical dilemma as well. Sure, I mean that sounds tough. I mean, because on the one hand, you're kind of having to say, "There's stuff I want to do for my patients, if, but if I do it, I can't follow it in this way." And but if you kind of eliminate your pay structure, you're, there's a population that maybe you can't work with anymore. Just correct, by and, and, of the and it was tough because yeah. I I didn't want to exclude sure. folks based on that. Yeah, that's the whole healthcare ecosystem, though. I mean, policies focused on money, yeah. right. not not on fixing people and helping people get better. Yeah. Exactly. So, I I want to throw this out. Um, I go way back with Swalahek. When I worked for the state, I didn't know, yes, so uh, I, and and in large measure, that has shaped, I think, some of my entrepreneurial spirit. spirit. So there was the uh, Columbine incident where there were uh, school shooters, around 2000 maybe. And after that, um, got together with some community folks. I was working for the state office of mental health and we applied for a grant through uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And we were awarded the grant, which was, well, I don't know, 1.25 million. And we partnered with Swallowheck awesome. to do the administration of it. Awesome. And it was a fabulous partnership, it really was. So I was able to learn about budgets and um, how to really uh, run a program like that fiscally and, and well, and, and do the monitoring, make sure that it's effective. So I learned a lot with you guys. Yeah, it's a great example of how our organization fits in. People have ideas and they need to do things, but they often need someone to do those back-end pieces, the hiring, the benefits paying, grant management, and, and that's where we can slide in as part of what we do. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper into, like, how that structure is. I mean, I was really piqued by the idea that the, the genesis of the AHEC concept, right, came what it looked like from you know, the 1970s, they're trying to address a social problem, and they say, all right, well, let's start these kind of organizations. So what was the idea then? I mean, how does it compare with where maybe, uh, you know, health education centers were in, I guess, 1972, and where they are today? I would say the majority of AHECs around the country are still just focused on that core mission. Most of them are small. They have a staff, three, four, five, six people. Right. We have 75 people because we've grown and expanded into these other areas. And that's one of the advantages we have that, that creates this flexibility. A lot of nonprofits are small sure. and they don't have the capacity to do the kinds of things they really want to do. So we're offering that capacity and continually you know, trying to expand our boundaries so we can have more capacity to help more people. For example, the, you know, the state's doing this Medicaid unwind now. The, the, uh, all the people, we've got over 2 million people in Louisiana who are on Medicaid. Uh, this is the first time in three or four years that we're having to, to verify and update their status. Mm-hmm. So we anticipate a lot of people coming off those Medicaid rolls. So part of what we're doing, we're in 26 parishes doing community outreach with people to try and help them update their, their Medicaid status. And if they become ineligible, then we work with them to see if they are eligible to reapply mm-hmm. for Medicaid. And if not, right, then we go another step and, and show them some of the marketplace options we have through the, the federal marketplace. 
space. Yeah. So we're trying to also streamline and take nonprofit A is doing this, nonprofit B is doing this. How do we bridge those? We're also trying to be that bridge and connector. And that's how a lot of our programs are. We, we actually, this morning, we were uh, talking about applying for a grant with a, a, a quasi-governmental agency in Lake Charles and the Office of Public Health and us. And so each of us will have a different piece to play in that grant that will actually facilitate uh, sending more and more mental health students into clinical uh, preceptorship so they can get their training. Healthcare is a, a very convoluted and complex space that's often working against itself, right? And we, we require so many stipulations that at some point the, the, the rate of return is not equal to what you would have to put out to make it work. And so we're losing people. That's why I was surprised when you, you said you were a, a social worker. It's so difficult to get people into the field because we've created all of these barriers to being successful in that field. Yeah. So kind of interesting that you were, no, you were also now a, a for, the, for the listening audience, I'm looking at Donna here. Donna, you were a social worker, but now you're a medical psychologist. And, and, and what I read was that you know, the legislation sort of enacted to allow psychologists to prescribe medication. Oftentimes people sort of divide that line between psychiatrist, medical doctor, they could prescribe, right? Yes. Was, again, a health shortage issue, right? They're saying, okay, well, we need to figure out a way to get people Yes. you know, prescribe meds. I mean, so, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, Donna, I mean, you've had a role, say, in the state uh, office of public health. Uh, you've worked in private practice. I mean, you know, where are we in terms of that continuum of actually trying to, like, develop policies that actually shape that gap, right? I mean, things like what you've gone through yourself, you're kind of an emblematic of it, right? Like, you're, you hold a degree that was intended to do that. I mean, are, are we taking other steps in Louisiana to get us there? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very pleased that Louisiana did take that step. It yeah. was a huge step. And I think right now there are maybe three other states ha really? that have allowed the legislation for psychologists to go back to school to be able to prescribe. Yeah. And um, there are lots of different political reasons sure. you know, for that, as you can imagine. Um, but I'm actually impressed that Louisiana uh, was able and willing to take that step to uh, bridge those gaps and to, and to try to offer health care where more was needed. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking to psychologist Donna Oquin and Gabriel Morley, CEO of the Southwest Louisiana Area Health Education Center. Gabriel, I know you, you kind of you started um, in your position at Swalahek, what, 2023, right? February? Yes. Yeah. So, so I mean, you've come up to a, what you've described in organizations has grown quite a bit. I mean, you know, I presume you're still thinking, all right, where do I go from here, right? I mean, what, what do you see kind of in the near future for your organization? Well, one of the big projects we have now is, is there's a, a push, and, and Donna probably knows this, around having community health workers. Mm -hmm. Because part of what we're seeing is these systemic issues that we've been pumping money into for decades are not subsiding. Yeah. Right? There's a huge syphilis problem now. We thought we got rid of syphilis mm -hmm. years ago, but now it's back. And so we, we can see obesity is still an issue, cardiovascular disease still an issue, uh, uh, smoking still an issue. And, and all of us here know, I mean, we say no to drugs, right? We went through the D.A.R.E. program, but here we are 40 or 50 years later and still dealing with these same issues. So part of, of our approach is to, to have this community health worker model where we take trusted people in the community who may not be healthcare providers, but uh, 
uh, enable them uh, to have access to resources to put uh, them in touch or have them put people in touch with organizations like us, with organizations like Donna, with the local Office of Public Health. Mm -hmm. Part of this is, is getting the, the medical professionals out of the office and their building, mm -hmm. right, onto the ground level in the neighborhoods and into communities. And we're doing that using a conduit of community health workers. Mm -hmm. and, and you may see, I mean, you'll start to, to read more and more about this. There's an organization in the state that's, that's uh, training community health workers so that we can put them back out in the communities. Uh, CVS is starting to hire community health workers. Uh, local hospitals are starting to hire community health workers. And, and I think what we're all going to see is this is going to become a new model mm -hmm. for how we can approach health care going forward, yeah. where we're, we're looking out for each other, saying, hey, this might be something you should address now and not later. And one of the unique things I, I think that, that we're doing at Swalahek is right now we're working on trying to train a group of young people to be community health workers hmm. so that through the expanse of their lifetime, they've already got this knowledge. And as they go and grow up, wherever they, they move, if they stay in Louisiana or not, they'll have this ability and expertise to identify and, and sort of guide people in the right direction so we don't continue to have these ongoing problems for perpetuity. Yeah, I mean, kind of what a hold on this, I'd never heard of this concept before. I mean, would, would something like that work in the mental health space? I mean, it's, you're, you're describing a situation people aren't necessarily trained healthcare providers, um, but I mean, like, I mean, kind of putting your previous occupational yes. hat back on from, from your time as a regional psychologist, I mean, would that have been a benefit to you? I guess is my yes, question. Yes, absolutely. So back when I was working for the state office of mental health, um, yeah. there were case managers in the field. I don't know if that's a similar concept similar. Yeah. Um, where they would go into the homes um, and they would help secure basic needs. And we know that if your basic needs aren't taken care of, it's very difficult for you to care for health and mental health. 100%. And so the case managers took on assorted roles um, and, and one was plugging them into community resources where they needed to get those basic needs met and then also facilitating communication between school and the mental health providers. So yes, absolutely. I wish that we were able to utilize more of those folks um, with the private pay uh, community or, or with insurance. So sure. insurance typically doesn't pay for this, but Medicaid does um, for the case management piece. I'm not sure about the community care workers, uh, how that works. But um, no, I can see how it was previously beneficial and how it would continue to be. So Donna, I kind of wanted to ask you, you, you said you know, some changes that you made back when, you know, kind of spurred by long wait lines, it seemed, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, how long is that wait list for you now? I mean, are you finding that you can meet the demand? I mean, my sense has been we have a lot of gifted um, mental health providers in the area, but maybe not enough. I mean, what's this like now? Uh, yes, our, our wait times are um, less than three months, okay. so it's more manageable. That's good. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it just depends. Uh, and I've also had to get contract providers, yep. uh, and I'm, I'm often adding contract providers as needed and depending on, on the demands and with which population so that we can try to meet those needs in a, a more timely fashion. Yeah, I mean, Gabriel, as I was asking that question, I think you were making a very emphatic gesture that no, we still have very much a shortage. I mean, talk to me about the way that looks from your vantage. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't think it's a secret to anyone. Mental health issues are on the rise, and it, the the demand is incredible. And part of of what Donna's talking about is those those Medicaid slots are so small, right? So the, some of the very people who need it the most don't have the access they need because providers aren't required like a hospital to just take you if you walk in the door right and so if they cap the number of medicaid patients they're going to see at let's say five percent of their patients then all of the other individuals who are on medicaid who have these mental health needs are not going to be seen by that provider and so part of this is 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 trying to get more people into the 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 field and then create what I, I, I sometimes am trying to say is like a triage system, even though that's very difficult to do, right? It's hard to have an initial intake visit with someone and say, okay, you're capable of going to see counselor X level because you don't know the full brunt of the, the, the issues, right? And so it's a, a very difficult space to be in, and the demand is increasing at a rate where we don't see enough people qualifying and becoming certified to get into those spaces. Is that a function of, you know, Louisiana is one of the few southern states that expanded Medicaid, uh, but, you know, I know that Medicaid programs look differently in different states. So is this a, a function, like what you're describing with the Medicaid spots, specific choke points around that insurance program? Is that a function of Louisiana's expansion, like the type of Medicaid program we have here, or is that something that's coming out of Washington? No, it's from the, the providers. The providers aren't required to, to take Medicaid patients, but Washington's also not reimbursing the rate they want, okay. right? So if, if let's just say uh, provider X charges $100, but Medicaid's only going to reimburse 70, yeah. then as a provider, you don't have an incentive to take that Medicaid patient except for your desire to do good and, and help people. And, and so they'll, they'll do their part Right, but there's still so much extra demand that it's uh, it's a it's a really incredible uh, situation, yep. and and it's a situation that at some point is going to reach critical mass. Uh, I'll give you an example of one of the things we've tried to do to to work around it. We've partnered with the Office of Public Health in Region Six, which is Lake Charles. I mean, Region Five, the the Lake Charles region, and another partner, Imperial Calcasieu Lake Charles Memorial Hospital. If an individual presents. Uh, at an emergency room with some kind of, of substance use issue, then we call a peer navigator, mm -hmm. someone who has also dealt with those those drug issues, to come down to the hospital and talk with that individual and, and, and sort of help walk them through the process of what's happening so that they have some they have some support mm -hmm. that is not necessarily medically driven. Right? It's somebody there to say, I've been through this. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. Let's see you know, if we can figure this out. And, and so you know, we're, everybody, I think, is trying to find a way to help curb some of this, especially yeah. as we see these rates rising. I'll tell you, there's some really unbelievable statistics about the effect social media has on young girls. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think it's a problem now, when those young girls become eligible or, 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 or ready to have children and decide not to have children because of the mental health issues they have, 20, 30 years down the road, we're looking at severe 
issues around population, right? Severe mental health issues, severe issues around family bonds and, and the way we've crafted society over the last 150 years. Don, are you seeing this show up in your practice? I mean, I feel like we've I've read plenty of headlines, plenty of articles about this topic, but I mean, localize this a little bit for us. I mean, is this something that's really happening in the way that it's discussed in the press itself? With social media? Yeah, the effect uh, that it's happening on sort of teen mental health, et cetera. It, it's, a, it's a new challenge. It's, um, well, I say new, relatively new. Sure. I feel like there's always been girl drama, um, right? You know, and, uh, and even when I was growing up, there was girl drama. But now it's hard to escape it. You know, you're at home. You know, previously there was girl drama at school or in the community. But now you get home and, and the drama continues um, because there's such ready access to what everyone else is doing, what they're saying. And so it's hard to escape it. And I think that there's this fear of missing out, fear of missing information if, if teens put the phone down and if they're not plugged in. So it's very difficult for them. It is. It's been a challenge. Um, uh, I th we're making a lot of progress. Uh, we feel like we're enabling teens to recognize when they need to change the channel and look at something else. And I think that the more insight that they're able to develop about how you can be negatively affected from social media, um, knowledge is power with that. Um, so I think that we've had to work hard with teens to get them to recognize that. Yeah, I mean, that's just yet another layer, right? And it's what is a increasingly complicated puzzle, right? I mean, right. health is, is a topic that we could spend a lot more time than we have, unfortunately, today mm -hmm. to talk about. But Donna uh, Okwe and Gabriel Morley, thank you so much for joining me today on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Sure. sure, thanks for having us. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been psychologist Donna Okwe and Gabriel Morley, CEO of Southwest Louisiana Area Health Education Center. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS. You can hear our unedited conversation to find out more about Okwe and Associates and Swallow Heck by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan. You can find more of Aster's photos at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Associate producer is Chad Terrio. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. Today's show was engineered by Dylan Babineau. I'm Christian Bader. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit news organization. To get the scoop on Lafayette, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our free newsletter. We'll see you here next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana was recorded live over lunch at Tsunami Sushi on Jefferson Street in downtown Lafayette. Tsunami is open Tuesday through Saturday for lunch and dinner, serving sushi, sashimi, salads, and authentic Japanese grilled dishes. Tsunami welcomes casual dining or reservations. More information at servingsushi.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. If you'd like to be part of Out to Lunch, to learn how your business or organization can become an Out to Lunch program partner, 
Email info at inobroadcasting.com.